Cujo? Cujo, what's the matter? Welcome to Now Playing's review of Cujo. It's not a monster, it's just a doggy. Part of the Stephen King movie retrospective series. There's no such thing as real monsters, only in stories. Hosted by Arnie. This whole damn thing was your idea. Stuart. You're not getting tired of this, are you? And Jacob. Why, well, he's crazy, but reason enough. This podcast contains detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Nope, nothing wrong here, folks. Listener discretion is advised. Today we're discussing Cujo, starring Dee Wallace, Daniel Hu Kelly, Danny Pintarho, directed by Louis Teague. This is Arnie, your rabid co-host of Now Playing. Stewart in L.A. This is the monster that got out of your closet, Jacob. Yeah, it's time to go back in the closet, Jacob. <laughs> welcome, welcome, welcome back to Stephen King, a series that we always intended to take breaks from, but I don't think any of us, much like Dead Zone, we didn't know the coma was going to be so long. <laughs> I'll take full responsibility for it. Writing a book and writing in-depth book reviews that are turning into book length themselves was... A hefty load for a person also working on four regular podcasts. So I was going to say, yeah, you do one or two other podcasts besides this as well. And I have a day job because donations go to the show not paying my bills. So, yes, I take full responsibility. I really want to thank everyone who's written and asked when the next books and nachos is coming out. The answer was yesterday. Dead Zone finally came out. And you and I are going to have a summer reading schedule, constant listeners, because we are going to catch up with all the king I've missed, Firestarter, Roadwork, Dance Macabre, Indeed, Cujo, and The Running Man. And then we're doing Cujo this week, Running Man next week for now playing, and then we will hit up more king around Halloween, and the books and nachos and movies will once again be in sync. So yes, it's my fault when last year we had some king on the schedule. Well, there's a reason we did Blair Witch and it follows. There were no books involved. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I agree. Books and Nachos is a harder show to do than now playing. When you have other people to bounce off of, it's easier than trying to, yeah, create 40 minutes of content as a solo monologue. I don't envy you. There's a lot of books that you got to cover, too. And we are on book 10 of Stephen King at this point. He has written 10 books. He published Cujo in 1981, and it was coming out uh, as a movie just a couple of years later. Yeah, this was the start of the King explosion in theaters. I mean, to contextualize it, in 77, we had Carrie. 79, we had Salem's Lot on TV. 80, we had The Shining. And with those hits, everybody was so excited by Stephen King. A shitload of stuff went into production. 82 got Creepshow, which kind of sparked it off. 83... Cujo, Dead Zone, Christine, 84, Children of the Corn, Firestarter, 85, Cat's Eye, Silver Bullet, 86, Maximum Overdrive. So I guess Cujo's the beginning of the end <laughs> with the <laughs> Stephen King name being gold. This is where the petals started to fall from the rose. 
Up to this point, you had respectable directors helming each project. I mean, maybe you're not a fan of everyone, but they're noted for being horror movie directors or people that make acclaimed films. Brian De Palma, Stanley Kubrick, Toby Cooper, George Romero. Yeah, now we're at Louis Teague. Who? Well, a couple of things about Louis Teague. First of all, he was not the original director for this. The original director quit after day two. Peter Medic, who actually <laughs> would have been a really good choice. He made a 1979 classic movie called The Changeling with George C. Scott. And I can see why they would have him for this kind of claustrophobic, fear-based premise. I think that it would have been a good movie. And I wish we had seen it. Not to say that what we got isn't a good movie, or at least not to say that yet. Well, there wasn't a lot of changes. I think maybe he left because he saw the movie the way it was going. But Louis Teague... To tell the story of how Cujo got to screen, it was purchased for film almost immediately after publication, possibly slightly before, and King was asked to write the first draft of it. The screenplay. Yes. And this is for a different film company, too, and they didn't name which one. So King wrote a very long draft of the screenplay based on this book. It differed from the book quite a bit, and he had seen the movie Alligator, and really enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. He also liked The Lady in Red, and these were both Louis Teague movies. So he said to that studio, I think Louis Teague should direct this film. And then Louis Teague didn't get the job. He went off to make a film for Dino De Laurentiis. And then after that, Dino found out the deal had fallen through on Cujo at the previous studio. He tried to buy it. It didn't work. It was over at Warner. And then he recommended Lewis. King was recommending Lewis. And when the other director dropped out and took his cameraman with him, Lewis came in and brought perhaps a much bigger name with him now, Jan DeBont, cinematographer extraordinaire. Yes, known at that time only for Paul Verhoeven's Dutch films, but would soon be known for, yeah, filming great action movies like Die Hard. And Leonard Part 6. Yes, <laughs> and, and directing his own movies like Speed and The Haunting, yes. Uh, he would go on to have a career of note, both as a cameraman and as a director, and I do think that, yeah, he is a notable presence in this movie we're talking about today. Well, I am interested in re-watching Cujo, because I've seen it before. I didn't see it in 83 when it came out, but sometime early 90s, 90, 91, 92, flipping through cable, and it was on, and it caught my attention, and I watched it, and something piqued my interest enough that I then went, I started reading King, I'd read, I think, about three of his novels at this point. This was my next one. This was also my last one, until I got to college <laughs> and I was forced to read some more. But Cujo, at least the novel... Just did not do it. It didn't work for me. I disliked it. I All I can recall is like this huge page or two about like red dye throw up going on. I'm like, what? what is this book about? But I'm interested to come back because there was something about this movie that got my interest to actually want to go and read that source material when I was like 14. And, you know, I don't know that I ever did see the movie. It was always on cable and I know I saw snippets. But I do remember the book more. I remember reading the book and always thinking of it as, yes, Jacob, one of my least favorite Stephen King books. It was a novel that just didn't seem to come together, that there were interesting moments, but they didn't all hang together, that we have a story about, yeah, false advertisement of cereal, 
mixed with a monster in a closet, mixed with this rabid dog plot. I'm not sure how it all ties together, and I'm sure that these problems will carry over into the film we're here to talk about today. But not a big fan of this book, and then even in rereading it a few months ago to prepare for the movie, I can't say that my opinion of it has greatly improved. I'm not going to show my full hand. I'll save it for the books and nachos that'll be out in a couple of months. But I saw Cujo the movie before I read Cujo the book, and I remember what happened. It was 1990. That was the time I got enrolled in the Stephen King book club. So I was being sent all of his books in order of publication, and I was getting really hyped for King. I started going back and watching all the movies I'd missed. But nothing drew me to Cujo. Around the same time, Stuart, you probably remember this, I got heavy into the TV show L.A. Law. I don't know how anyone can treat that like it's a cult thing, but I like was writing episode guides. You like your legal dramas. I do. And they started syndicating L.A. Law on Lifetime, which I was a little embarrassed to watch as it was billed as the network for stay-at-home moms at that point. This must have been when I saw it, too. It was around the same time. So you're saying this was on Lifetime a lot? It was. And I remember I was embarrassed because the whole ads for L.A. Law was like, Harry Hamlin, Jimmy Smith, they're so hot. And I'm like, yeah, but I just want to watch L.A. Law. There's women who kiss on it. And so while I'm watching L.A. Law on Lifetime... This movie must have been in constant rotation because I just kept seeing ads for this all the time. And I remember them very clearly because they were calling her D. Wallace Stone as a mother in the midst of a heated battle and just really playing <laughs> up the strong woman aspect. And I'm like, you know what? Fuck it. It's on Lifetime. I'll watch it. My one and only time watching it before this movie. So this is my first time seeing a not edited for television version. I did go and read the book. I'll preview that I like the book better than the movie. And I really like some of the writing in the book. But it's not a perfect book. The original Stephen King screenplay differed from the book in a lot of ways. And when... Louis Teague came in and started working with the screenwriters. His entire instruction to them was make it closer to the book. So Lauren Currier and Don Carlos Dunaway went to the Stephen King book, basically abridged it. They tried to keep as much dialogue in this movie as was in the book as possible. Again, this is before Stephen King lost his luster. I think they thought by doing a straight adaptation was the best way to be faithful and be a success with the King audience. And not get King to deride the film like he did with The Shining and other ones he didn't like. This is still, to this day, King considers it one of the best adaptations of his work. <laughs> of course. <laughs> the one's closest to what he did. I mean, yeah, I tend to agree. Yeah, it's close to what I remember that book being about. I don't know if that's a good thing. That's what we're here to discuss, I guess. I mean, we reviewed Louis Teague because we've already done Cat's Eye. A film that would be made several years later that King wanted Teague to do because he was so happy with what Teague did here. King likes a yes man. That's my feeling. Mm -hmm. And the TV movie version of The Shining is so much better than Kubrick. <laughs> I was just thinking about <laughs> Mick Garris. <laughs> <laughs> well, then, Arnie, why don't you tell him what King loves so much in a plot summary? We'll get into Cujo. This is really a high concept story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So the plot summary will be very simple and we'll go into some of the subplots later. But D. Wallace 
before she was D. Wallace Stone, plays Donna Trenton, a bored and adulterous Maine housewife. Left alone while her husband Vic is out of town on work travel, she takes her ailing Ford Pinto to Joe Camber's local repair shop. In tow is her young son, Tad, played by Danny Pintaro. But they arrive to a deserted house. See, Camber's friendly St. Bernard named Cujo had been bitten by a bat and got rabies. The dog killed Camber and Camber's neighbor, and when Donna and Vic arrive, the dog tries to kill them too. They try to drive away, but their car has died completely, and the dog keeps them trapped in the vehicle for two full days. As it's the dog days of summer, mother and son start to bake in their small vehicle while awaiting rescue. But no one comes to the house as Camber's wife and son are out of town, and they even had their mail stopped. Eventually, Sheriff Bannerman comes looking for them, but Cujo kills him too. Finally, as Tad is about to die of dehydration, Donna emerges from the vehicle and battles Cujo, impaling him on a broken baseball bat that was laying by the side of the driveway. And her husband arrives right after the battle as she takes Tad in the house for some water and credits roll. Yeah, that was so high level where you skipped the first half. <laughs> yeah, there's a whole... Um, there is a whole Lifetime drama going on. Yeah. It, you know what? I saw this on Lifetime and... I always thought of this as like it felt like a made-for-TV, a made-for-lifetime movie. It felt like Mother May I Sleep with Danger or one of those. So seeing it on Blu-ray with no commercials, trying to imagine what I would feel if I'd paid a movie ticket for this, which was maybe 250 back then, but still, how I would feel trapped alone in a room with this movie is very difficult. This is a movie that feels like it deserves commercial breaks. And it was a hit. It's worth pointing out that this movie made a tidy little $21 million on a $8 million budget. So Yeah, I can't imagine it cost too much to make. I'm surprised it was $8 million. Yeah, I mean, you know, you're working with kids and dogs. It couldn't have been an easy shoot. All the cars were broke down. It's not like they needed good ones. And they had a really good trailer. I mean, go check out YouTube. Go look up the trailer. They don't tell you what Cujo means. Now, of course, the name is synonymous with a rabid dog. You you know, you just say, oh, that Cujo. You could, for any dog that's out of control, you could use the word. But back then, you may not know what that word connotates. You know Stephen King's reputation. You might think it's a monster or a demon or something. The trailer is simply people saying the name, looking around in the mist. And so it had a lot of inference to it. You would go into this movie blind if you had only seen that trailer. You would not know what you were about to see. And yet they give it away right at the beginning. I mean, you get these very drawn-out shots of a dog chasing a bunny until he gets his head stuck in a hole and a bat bites him. Hey, this is pretty good stuff. This is where I'm seeing Jan DeBont, the young cinematographer, pull some pretty good camera moves. No, I, I do like the cinematography here. I agree with you. Yeah, that can't be easy to stay with a dog and make all of this work. But apart from them having to use a fake bat on a string for the actual bite, I feel like this sequence is about as good as you could hope for in 1983. Yeah, the bats reminded me of the movie Graveyard Shift that would come out over a decade later. And look as bad. But yeah, I really did like that scene where the dog is sticking his head into the hole and it's completely backlit and the rays of sun are coming in. Yeah, I was wondering how they got that shot. Like, was that actually in a hole? Was that some kind of setup that they made? I mean, it does look like some nature documentary where they have those little cameras that they put in gopher holes and such. Yeah, they made a lot of sets for this. They had like a bunch of different cars and it was all Jan DeBont driving it. Jan's like... 
I want this to not use the same shots all the time. So I need like eight different cards with different sections cut off each one for each camera setup. Wisely, they decide to leave out something that Stephen King, I would say his boldest choice in the novel, put in. Voiceover narration from the dog's point of view. Ooh, I don't remember that. (laughs) Yes, the dog actually has uh, human cognition. Well, kind of. And that's actually my favorite part of the book. Really? (laughs) I really like how Stephen King personifies the dog and his limited reasoning and limited thinking. It really helps sell you in these early scenes that Cujo was indeed a good dog. And one of the things King's really selling with that book, I mean, the last lines of the book, spoiler alert, the boy dies, but King spends the last couple chapters eulogizing the dog and saying it's not the dog's fault that he went rabid. I mean... King is very concerned in making sure you know the dog is a good dog. And I liked this reasoning. It was the only thing I remembered. I read Cujo the book after seeing this movie. We're now 20 years later, over 20 years. All I remembered when I picked it up to reread before this podcast was that the dog had thoughts about the boy, the man, the woman. And that was something I really liked and seeing it devolve as the rabies engulfed his brain. I think that was inventive. But you don't want like Bill Murray doing voiceover. <laughs> oh, what, what's happening to me? I'm feeling angry. Like, come on. That would not be a good choice for this movie. It wasn't like that either in the book. You know, it was not like he was thinking words. He just, it was conveying his emotions and his rudimentary thought process. And King's gone in the head of dogs in previous books. He just took it to an extreme here. And like I said, there's some writing there I like. But yeah, here we're just seeing the dog chase the bunny and it's following the plot of the book to a T. The rewrites, they just went straight off of it. I was surprised they did bats. I thought that maybe they'd do something easier to film, but they, no, went with full bats here. And Stuart, when you said... The thing you thought was great they left out, the boldest thing. I thought for sure you were going a different direction and talking about this movie's connection with The Dead Zone, King's earlier novel that was the first to introduce Castle Rock. Well, this takes place in Castle Rock. That book alludes strongly that there is an evil in Castle Rock that was personified by Frank Dodd, that murderer that Christopher Walken stops in that film that we reviewed last year. I did get that vibe, you know, going back to Salem's Lot, where there's just something evil, like, we're going to cut to this kid, Tad, and he's worried about monsters in his closet. Like, I was wondering, that that seems like a theme with King, that there is always this evil, this darkness lurking around. I mean, maybe it's not even about Cujo getting rabies. It's about some spirit. I, I do feel like there are hints of that in this film. It's overt in the book. There are times where it really leads to the ghost of Frank Dodd might have inhabited Cujo after he got rabies. The Trentons are living in the house where Frank Dodd killed himself. They bought that house and moved in after the fact. So there's a lot of ties to that. And does that work in what's honestly a very grounded novel? If you take that away, no ghosts come out. There's just the stuff in the closet that may be Cujo before he's even rabid, or it may be Frank Dodd. If you take all that out, you have one of King's most grounded stories that he wrote under his own name, about a woman terrified by a dog. 
Yeah, it puts this in the realm of suspense, more like Jaws than The Shining. And I think with Stephen King, you expect it to have a supernatural bent. And again, those previews toyed with that idea that there was some unseen, malevolent, evil force waiting in the mist for you. I think that that's what people want from King. I think it's what he does best. But I think it's probably best, if you're adapting Cujo, uh, that you probably stay away from that. Particularly since the movie of Dead Zone hadn't even come out yet when this movie came out in summer 83. And it was owned by a different studio. Right. So there was no way they were going to make direct ties. Yeah. But no, I thought that's what you were going to say was wisely left out. Because it's the part of the novel that feels the most strained to me. But I'll, I'll go into that when I do books and nachos for it. Here... They're just sticking to it very closely with the monster in the closet, Shades of King's old boogeyman story, and we're seeing idyllic Maine family life with the Trentons. And Who are not the owners of Cujo. It may surprise you I, that we start with this dog getting bit. You might think that they are the unfortunate owners that are going to pay the price for not keeping their dog on a leash. They will pay a price, but it will take a long time, actually, to get back to Cujo. They are living in an entirely different world, one of privilege. Yeah, idyllic is a good word. I'll just say it right up front. Does any of this stuff matter? There's adultery going on. Vic, the husband, he's got to go travel on business because the cereal that he wrote a commercial for is poisoning people. Like, it feels like a very different movie than what it ends up becoming. And I don't know if any of this stuff really pays off. All right, I'll tell you what the director said. I didn't get it myself. (laughs) Even in the book, it's made more overt in the book. I didn't get it from the movie at all. But what Louis Teague says the theme of this movie is, is you think you have problems. It's basically a criticism of neuroses. You hear that, like my mother always used to say it, you're crying, I'll give you something to cry about. That's basically the theme here, is these people think they have problems. Vic thinks he has work trouble that may cause him to lose his ad agency. Donna thinks she's bored and lonely, and so she goes off and have an affair, and then she thinks she's worried that her marriage is crumbling. And all of that ceases to matter when they face real trouble, when they really have something to cry about, a dog that's going to kill them. (laughs) I don't know if that plays out here. I also think that's kind of trite. Like, why can't people have the problems they have? Like, can't adultery and a marriage breaking up be a real problem? And can we have that the conclusion for any melodrama that we don't like? Like, terms of endearment, we're just going to have coming at the end on the deathbed scene, a giant rabbit, St. Bernard. Oh, you got cancer? Well, I'm going to get you first. <laughs> I mean, I think there is something to be said that life and death struggles put things in perspective. Things that are your everyday problems, your career advancement, things like that, suddenly get put in a little bit of perspective when someone close to you dies or something like that. I've had that happen in my own life where I realize the things that I'm worrying about may not be the most important things to worry about. So I kind of get that. It I don't know that it's trite, Jacob, so much as it's dismissive. You know, it's like your problems don't really matter compared to a dog that's going to bite your child's head off. I had a different reading for this all, actually. I actually felt like what we're going to end up having sympathies for is Vic, I think. The head of this household, the provider, he 
runs an ad agency through no fault of his own. The serial that he's created, this serial professor TV character to hawk it, is becoming a punchline. You know, nothing wrong here is what the serial professor says every time there's a commercial for it. And in fact, the serial makes kids shit red dye that looks like blood and causes their parents to think they're having internal hemorrhaging. So there is a problem going on and poor Vic is the victim of it. Yeah, no, I do feel bad for Vic because I don't know why this is his problem. It's the company that made the cereal. It's their problem. Why are they trying to blame the guy who made the ad for him and sell the cereal? You're right there. That like He's got to put a happier face on it. His car doesn't work. His wife's cheating on him. Commercials are going bad. But he gave him the slogan. Nothing wrong here was his slogan. And that it's the irony of that, that they need to quickly come up with a new campaign. I think they need to take the cereal off the market first, but (laughs) take that dye out of the cereal. That they need to quickly come up with a new concept is going to take him further away from his family. And then, yes, that he is also having a wife that's having an affair. The way I kind of read it is that Cujo could be sort of his anger. That on some level, it's what his aggression or his wishes upon his wife for what she's done to him. But I also see Vic as he's the one that keeps the monsters away. Their son, Tad, is scared of a monster in the closet. He comes in. He has these words that he says to fend the monsters off. And Tad gets worried when his dad has to go out of town because mommy doesn't know the words. So it's like Cujo attacks, I guess, because... Mommy didn't get the memo of what to say before Tad went to bed. Yeah, Mommy is horrible. And I don't know that the dog is the personification of Vic's anger, because in my reading, Vic is a very 70s Alan Alda kind of guy. It's 81. He's not the kind who's going to get mad. He finds out his wife's cheating on him. He doesn't hit her. He doesn't get abusive. He cries about it. You know, he he's an avoider. He leaves town. Maybe if you want to really get deep on this, Cujo is old male anger because Cujo is owned by an abusive mechanic, Joe Camber, who does threaten his wife and is a very kind of backwoods. Yeah, he's planning on like going and partying and banging a lot of hookers when his wife wins the lottery. Yes. The lottery being like $5,000, by the way. Hey, man, 1983 money. I'll take it. I'd take it today. In the book, she only matched like five of the numbers, hence why it's such a low amount. Here, they kind of gloss it over. But yeah, I think he is the violent, more, you know, classical man's man who, you know, in the... 50s, it was okay to slap women in movies and things, and Vic just isn't that kind of guy. And I was looking for some kind of, maybe class message here, because Camber, yeah, he's the mechanic you go to when the other one's too busy. He lives off in the hills, that's always a danger sign, run-down house, abusive to his wife, but I just don't see how any of this is related to Cujo. Like, I'm stretching to try to make connections here, and I just, Cujo chased a bunny and got bit by a bat. There's parallel families here. There is a husband and wife that are unhappy and a little son caught in the middle. Both the Cambers and the Trittons are set up in the same way. And I think that you could draw some parallels about how the Camber woman is basically going to leave her husband while at the same time D. Wallace's Stone's character is 
cheating on her husband. They mirror each other, but what those parallels tell you about the story and what Cujo, if you see them as any kind of justice or vengeance, it's a stretch. And I will just say that I know that Stephen King was having real problems with his own maybe his own marriage, and definitely with his substance abuse. And I think it leads to why the story feels imbalanced. He just didn't have a great handle on it. Probably would have been better if he had had a couple of editors come in and help him find a better version. Well, he said that a lot was smoothed out in the editing process. He's also said he has no memory of writing this book because he was (laughs) so stinking drunk for most of it. So (laughs) take that for what you will. I do think that he relates to Cujo. I think you could look at Cujo as drunk king uh, attacking his family and once was a good dog but has turned against him. Possibly. I was thinking a lot about The Shining. I mean, if you look at The Shining where you had Jack Torrance, the mostly good father but struggling with the old male patriarchy and his own father issues and becoming violent after basically a ghost bit him here i kind of see similar things going on because first of all the mothers you know when the tension starts to rise starts becoming a little more curt with her son and everything and you've still got this ominous spirit causing all of it in this case the spirit is the rabid dog but I just saw some shades of balance there with this family of a married couple seemingly happy, but not quite with their young son. The family structure is very much like the Torrance's. And yet the problem for me is it's not a spirit. It's rabies. It's a natural (laughs) thing that happens. This isn't suburban on way like possessing a dog and making him go crazy. It's he got bit by a bat and it's totally unrelated to this family drama. Yeah, you can, you know, in a novel, it's easier to create metaphor like that, that it is suburban ennui that drives the dog to do that. You could write a book that way. You could never film a movie that way. No one's ever going to really get that from a movie. My problem is, beyond the fact that it doesn't have any thematic ties to a rabid dog, I don't think that this soap opera stuff is just very good. I don't think the acting is very good. I think her choice of partner is really strange. I find all of it very unappealing. It's like half of it is Kramer versus Kramer, and then it decides in the second half to be Jaws. And I think it worked better in the book because I'm casting it in my head and going off the descriptions. I'll say right now, I feel D. Wallace is miscast in this. She... I know her from E.T., and I know her from The Howling. I guess I'm going to see her for the first time in Critters when we get to that in our donation series. Lords of Salem. Oh, yes. She was very old in that. But I think that she comes off as a very tough, capable, independent, ballsy woman. That is against the role she's given to play of damsel in distress. I feel she could kick this dog's ass from the beginning. I mean, this is like Linda Hamilton in T2 versus Linda Hamilton in T1. They're very different characters. One's tough and strong, where the other one is more helpless. If this is supposed to be a helpless character and we see her journey to defending her family, or at least her son. Yeah, I agree with you, Arnie. This actress already seems tough, and so I don't feel that arc. 
She seems brittle. I don't know about tough. I didn't get the sense that she could do like a bunch of one arm pull ups or anything, but I actually did. <laughs> I, I feel like she's deeply unhappy in her marriage and not particularly happy with her lover either. Just basically living a life of quiet desperation and rejecting in her own way the servile role of being a mother. Perhaps she's pissed that her husband is driving around in a Jaguar and she's got to <laughs> be in this Pinto that's always breaking down. Well, he is the one making the money, but <laughs> when I was reading the book, she was described as much younger than Dee Wallace is here. I just think that at the age she is here in her 30s, she should be able to stand on her feet a little more. The whole plight of the bored housewife who's screwing around because she has fears of what her life's going to become when Tad goes off to school. Dee Wallace doesn't seem that brittle. I know that's how she's written, but I don't believe it. And all right, the guy she's sleeping with, his name's Steve Kemp. Steve the Handyman. It is her real-life husband, Christopher Stone. Also in the howling. Wow, they must have had a bad marriage because I didn't get any chemistry off Exactly. Mm. No freaking chemistry here at all. And man, I don't mean to be mean, but there's like nobody glamorous in this. I can't see a bored housewife wanting to run away with that bearded goon and... I can't see the town stud really wanting D. Wallace. The whole thing feels very forced. I just don't see these people's role with each other. Yeah, it's a very unappealing world across the board. I feel like the situation is ugly. The people are pretty ugly, actually. The dog, <laughs> ugly. You said pointedly what I was just dancing around. <laughs> yeah. No, I think we can say that. This is not a particularly inviting world. And if it were not photographed by Jan de Bont, I think I would have a hard time looking at it. It's also really brown. Even though it is filmed by Jan de Bont, all the scenes... It feels very 70s it is so brown. Yeah, it's like all the stuff in the scene is brown, the light coming through the windows is brown. It feels like the negative got cigarette smoke on it because you were allowed to smoke in the workplace back then. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah... This first half of the book was alternately gripping as a drama book, which you don't expect from Stephen King. I mean, if I was in the literature section and picking up a book about a family coming apart, it works in that way. But I picked up a book about a freaking rabid dog terrorizing a person in a car. I didn't realize it took half the book and half the movie to get there. This movie is paced exactly like the book. When Donna rolls up at Camber's place, I looked in the book. I was 50%. I looked here. We're 45 minutes in a 90-minute movie. I can't believe we spent half the movie just on family drama that none of the plot threads are finished. What happens with Vic's advertising campaign? I don't know. What happens to Steve Kemp? He trashes their house after Donna dumps him. We don't really see him again, though. What happens with the mom and the lottery money? We don't see them again here either. Stuff in the book is tied up, at least. I'll give it that. Here, they're filling time. Yeah, this was playing on Lifetime. Look, I've watched Lifetime movies before, Guilty Pleasures. More entertaining than this, like the drama. The Strangely, Guilty Pleasures sounds like the name of a made-for-Lifetime movie. Yeah, I'm sure it is. <laughs> There's... Yeah, there, there's nothing about this drama that I, I actually fell asleep during this first half. I had to rewind and start part of it over because I was that bored watching it. In this movie's defense, not that I really want to because you guys are absolutely <laughs> on point, 
But there was a time, and it was called the 70s, where movies were paced this way. It usually happened in disaster films. You would have like a full solid hour to, quote, introduce the characters, and they would usually be involved in these kind of petty disputes and what have you. And then finally we would get the earthquake or the volcanic eruption or the meteor or whatever it is and get to the good stuff. And I can remember as a kid being antsy, wait, I would sometimes leave the room and ask my brother to tell me when that good stuff finally happened. It was just sort of the building anticipation half of the movie that you never really wanted to watch but might feel obligated to sit through. It was always about the second half. Yeah, but even in those disaster films where you get these ensemble casts, there's one or two characters at least you care about them. I don't really care. I mean, yeah, there's a small child that might get eaten by a dog. I don't want that to happen to a small child, but I don't really care about Tad. Well, it's Danny Pintero from Who's the Boss? Yeah, I never liked Who's the Boss. Well, <laughs> you know, I I would like to just ask him who was harder to work with, the St. Bernard or Tony Danza? <laughs> I think Tony's probably an okay guy. Alyssa Milano, however, I bet she was a diva. Oh, I'd like to work with Alyssa Milano. <laughs> I've seen Embrace of the Vampire over 50 times. <laughs> or at least certain scenes of it. Yeah. I can see what you're saying, but the dog getting rabid and attacking the neighbor, I mean, that still comes over a half an hour into the film. And I was trying to meter my expectations because you guys know I'm impatient with slow openings. I like films that grip me. And so I tried to remind myself, hey, there was a time when I'd watch Friday the 13th and there was like a spark at the opening, but then a half an hour of character introduction before we get to the kills. I was willing to give this movie every minute of that first half hour. It keeps going beyond that, though, and it's about 40 minutes or so into the movie when the dog finally decides it's going to kill the neighbor. Yeah, you know, and here's the thing. Here's the deal that I've made. I remembered the movie being paced this way. I remember movies were like this back then. And so as long as they give me Jaws in the second half, then I'll be okay with this dry first half. The first half is not inviting or good at all. But if all it's doing is setting up who's going to be the dead meat and then we get Jaws... Great. Then uh, get me to it. Because keep in mind, I read the Peter Benchley Jaws book, and it had a subplot involving marital infidelity. I mean, that movie could have ended up like that if it had been made faithfully to the book. It could be paced just like Cujo. So I'm going to give it the fact that this beginning was not great and that I wasn't a fan of the book and just want to see the skill of Louis Teague now that he is going to film Dog Attacks. If you wanted Jaws, you're going to get it from Charles Bernstein. Did you hear that score? It is total Jaws ripoff. It tries. Charles Bernstein has done some great horror stuff before, the Nightmare on Elm Street theme being his most classic. This one, not so much. It's been a while since I've seen Jaws, but I, I seem to remember, I mean, there were hints of the shark and stuff going on. Here we see Cujo, I don't know, his eyes are oozing more and more throughout I feel like there's a point where it's exciting, but the, the first few kills, that could have happened earlier, show the danger earlier. He's going to attack Joe Kember and his friend that he's going to run off with to do totally hetero stuff. I made that sound kind of weird, but they're going to run <laughs> off and spend the wife's money on hookers. Like, I don't know. Get to that stuff earlier. Intrigue me a bit about this dog. So when we get to the good part, which I think is Donna and Tad in the car... I'm more gripped by it. I feel like it's such a harsh line from boring drama to 
animal attack movie. I've been the one in these podcasts who's often criticized changes to the film that skew away from King's novel. I've been very much a King defender. Here, I think they should have gone more horror, gone away from the book, and upped the body count. You know who I think should have died is Camber's wife and son. I know it's harsh, but it would have set the stage. In King's book, Tad dies. Here, Tad lives. I think it would make sense if we killed the older boy because they're going to leave town with their lottery winnings. It's an eye-rolling moment that they won the lottery and then they don't really do anything that they couldn't accomplish as corpses too. It would allow the killing to begin earlier and we could have dog attacks during the emotional moments. Like when we see Donna and Vic get into a fight about her adultery, then juxtapose that with a dog tearing a mother and son apart with his teeth, you know? I think you could create more of a metaphor there and make the first 50 minutes less dull by having Cujo get rabid faster and go worse out there and still keeping it the same amount of movie time. You know, it's like still one or two days that this is occurring so that it wouldn't be too unrealistic that nobody had gone out there and found the corpses, but it's still possible. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. You're not wrong, but I know that they're not going to do that. And again, if they can make the last 40 minutes great, I'll forgive the first 40 minutes and give it a green arrow. They don't make the last 40 minutes great, though, Stuart. (laughs) They don't. I was really curious how they were going to do this. I presumed with Jaws, you know, a lot of that, the mechanical shark did not work, and they had to make the camera the attacker. I thought we were going to get a lot of POV. I am impressed that they work with dog trainers, and they really try to show you this dog leaping on people, that they do not, I don't think it's even a puppet. I think it's a real dog in a lot of cases, and they really want to sell that thing. You know, St. Bernard's are one of the biggest breeds there are out there. It's got real mass to it. I can't say that I feel like this dog, as well-trained as he is, ever... I guess I always find him cute. (laughs) They can put all the egg and foam they want on him. There's something kind of adorable about this dog. I find it hard to see him driven by madness and rabies. There were 10 different St. Bernards used on the shoot. The number varies from 5 to 10. The director says 10 St. Bernards plus a dog of another breed, because the dog trainer's like, let's not use St. Bernard's for this. They're not good for this. Let's change the breed. But Teague wanted to stay faithful to King's stuff, so they did have another dog in a St. Bernard suit, and they had a human in a St. Bernard suit. In a suit? Yes. Oh, wow. They had a man in a dog suit. (laughs) I didn't ever notice that. Some of the scenes where the dog is, like, doing specific things that might hurt a dog... They have a guy in a suit doing it. Okay. No animals were harmed here, at least not by the filming. One of the dogs did die of just natural causes, but no, there's a lot of dog stuff here, and I don't think he's very scary. My thing coming into this, and then King called it out in the pros, St. Bernard's, I think of St. Bernard's, I think of those old, like, Hanna-Barbera cartoons of the St. Bernard with the jug around his neck, the whiskey barrel. Yeah, they save you in the snow. Yeah, he'd come and give people liquor to warm them up when they're freezing, and Mm -hmm. the dogs here all look very friendly. It's like somebody poured goop on them and they need a bath. Yep. They're even wagging their tail in some scenes. Like, yeah, I'm a good boy. I'm a good boy. I'm a good boy. (laughs) Exactly my point is that, yeah, at no point do I feel like that dog is rabid. It feels trained. 
It's going to do what it's supposed to do. It's going to jump on people and growl or whatever, but it, it feels like it's performing an act and thus I'm just not scared of it. You know, I think if you come to this movie afraid of dogs, you might be scared, but there's nothing about this dog performance, if I can call it that, that would terrify you. No, what the stuff that's scary to me is being stuck in that car and the heat. Look, we all grew up around the same time. There was a time where parents would leave their kids in the car with the windows rolled up in the summer while they ran in to go grocery shopping or something. I remember those moments, like be sitting there in the heat of a car. I was left in a car many times, yes. Yeah, no, that was a common thing. Nowadays, you got strangers breaking your windows to pull the kid out of there. But that is the stuff, and maybe it's because of the cinematographer, the way it's shot. Like, there is something about being stuck in such a small, confined space that's more horrific than this cute dog jumping all over the car. They do what they can with the dog. And again, I'm impressed they didn't cheat by just having it all be POV. That would have been bad. If it was just the camera running at people and you would never see it, that would definitely not work. The fact that they try to work with dogs is to their credit. And they're doing a lot with camera. It's ironic, right? Because, you know, usually what happens is you leave your dog in the car and it dies. So now it's the reverse. The dog's got you in the car. And there's no hope of Donna and Tad getting inside, getting to the phone. Their Pinto has decided to completely conk out conveniently as soon as it, as it arrives to the property. And now they are trapped there until someone can rescue them or until Donna can get the nerve to step out and kick its ass. And they have a lot of reasons all straight from King's book as to why nobody's coming there. Because Camber was going to go out whoring. He had stopped the mail. Nobody was going to look after the place. And so that mailman would not have saved them anyway. I can tell you that. Right there. <laughs> well, that's the joke. No, the mailman, they should have a mailman get eaten by a dog in this film. That would be true. Yeah. Yeah. It would have brought more curiosity earlier is the, is the reason why you don't do that. You, if you can only have so many dead bodies lying on the lawn before someone gets suspicious. Small town, people go missing. It gets noticed. He sets up a lot of extenuating circumstances to put all the players just where they need to be when Cujo could have eaten a lot of them. But yeah, now we're going to get this sweltering car scene. And unfortunately, though... We don't stay with the car as much as I'd hoped. The scenes in the car, if we were just to show the scenes of the car, I think we'd have a trouble making a 30-minute episode of Tales from the Crypt or something like that. Because here, we're going to go see Vic on his business trip where he just decides he's going to leave and abandon his partner to go back home. We're going to see Kemp getting mad that he was jilted tearing up the house and slashing photos. All stuff I don't care about because I'm into the slasher dog film that they pulled away from at this point to show this other stuff. Yeah, it's almost like the slasher dog is the subplot in this family drama. Yeah, you know, I don't want to be too cruel about it. A, a woman and her child in danger is enough to get anybody on their side, but there isn't much more beyond that. It's not like I would feel really bad for Vic if he came back and his wife and son were eaten. I'm like, eh, he'd move on. He didn't seem that attached to them. He couldn't make do. I didn't get a sense of real love there. And maybe the best thing for this family would be as if they divorce. So, you know. <laughs> or half of them get eaten. Or half of them get eaten, exactly. Yeah, no. No, that is a problem. I could empathize with this because it's a horrific situation, but I don't care about the characters. Yeah. I don't feel that D. Wallace shows me a character 
who is repentant for her previous sins. You know, she is an adulterous wife. All right, she is the wronged party there. I would feel sympathy for her if she was cheated on by her husband who claimed to be working all the time when he was screwing the secretary. But by being the adulteress, you've already got an uphill battle to get me on her side. At no point in this car does she start to feel more guilt and start to have perspective. King puts this stuff in the book. D. Wallace's performance is all fear and shock and anger, but I don't get remorse. I don't get anything from her other than, like you said, Stuart, she's a mother with a child in a car being attacked by a dog, and we want to not kill humans in general, but I know this is fiction, and I just think that in a lot of fiction, the adulterous wife would be one who would die. In a lot of horror movies where you die for your sins, this is one where you die for that sin. And Correct. Hey, I'd want Steve the Handyman to come over my husband, because I think Steve the Handyman could take off Cujo versus Vic. (laughs) I was surprised out of all the characters, I thought for sure that he would have found his way to that farmhouse and gotten eaten. They instead contrived some random cop to show up later, but it really should have been Steve. Not random cop, that's Sheriff Bannerman. That's Tom Skerritt from the Dead Zone. Right, supposedly, but it's because we have no ties with that movie or that world, it's random cop number one. (laughs) I wanted Steve to get it. I mean, I don't think we're wrong in that. I like the fact that it's a misdirection for the authorities that they're chasing after Steve, that when they catch up with him, that he hasn't abducted Donna and Tad, as was presumed from his vandalism. I mean, I thought that worked pretty well. But the ticking clock here is that she's running out of water, and if she doesn't get Tad inside to some cool air and some hydration, he will definitely pay her. She's bit, too, it should be said. Her first voyage out of the car, she got jumped. She has rabies at this point, which I guess is not enough to make her foam at the mouth and attack people, but she will die of this if she doesn't get treatment soon. She may have rabies. I mean, a bite does not guarantee rabies. Usually what happens is you get the shots anyway, because if you have rabies and it advances, you'll die. But she might or might not have rabies. As far as the dehydration goes, because I'd read the book, when Tad starts spasming, and I'll give Pintero some credit for his acting there. I mean, it looked like a pretty decent spasm. There was one shot that was really alarming that, uh, yeah, his facial expression, the way that she's holding him and the dog is like barking in the background through the window. Yeah. Yeah, it's a chilling moment. But would you get from this that it's dehydration? I watched this with Marjorie, and Marjorie just turned to me and goes, what's wrong with the kid? I mean, they're selling that it's hot, but there's not a single line about, oh, we're out of water. I think that just through dialogue and increasing the tension, they could have shown them trying to conserve what little they had in the car, trying to meter it out, showing them running out of water. Building that suspense instead of just all of a sudden the kids having seizures. I mean, Marjorie thought he might just be epileptic. 
Yeah, and you could have written it that way. I mean, usually that is the case. The kid has some special thing that necessitates mom. Yeah, yeah. you give him diabetes and he needs insulin. There yeah. you go. Yeah, I think they did that in Panic Room. So, yeah, you can do that. And maybe they should have done that. But I got it. They mentioned the thermos and she says something about they're running low on water once. So I just presumed that if with 24 hours passing that that was his problem. They sell the time well, and I like the nighttime cinematography. Again, Jan de Bont's the best thing about this movie. Mm-hmm. I just think that it wasn't sold well, and things don't really kick up for me until that cop shows up, and when the cop shows up and we actually get an action scene, I want to point out, we're ten minutes from the end. I know, and you feel every bit of it. You're right, this is not as good as what Spielberg did on the water, it's not even close, that said, I do feel like there are a couple things that work. When she got jumped early on, that was, you know, she looks under the car and it comes up behind her. That was a pretty good scene. When the phone sets the dog off and it starts ramming its head against the car, I'm, there are moments that could have worked, but they're isolated. And with so much tedium in between, you lose a grip on anything that might be considered suspenseful. It could be a much more scary movie if it were just a much more shorter movie. Yeah, make this a segment of Cat's Eye. Yeah, th I agree. There's somewhat about the book as well. It could have been much shorter. The one jump scare did get me, the time that they were just sitting there very quiet and the dog pounds against the window out of nowhere and the music swells. You know, it's the standard, you know, mm -hmm. the cat jumps out at you jump, but... It was effective in yeah, that. Yeah, I remember that scene. That's a, yeah, definitely. But I feel like I am dehydrating in a hot car and I'm getting drops of water in this film. <laughs> Fortunately, I didn't have to stay in that car for two days. I only had to stay for 90 minutes. But here, the biggest change, and there's controversy over whose choice this was. I'd read that Stephen King in his original draft of the film realized Tad Dying was too uncommercial and put it there. Louis Teague said that, and I've had other sources tell me that Teague realized the kid dying is no way to work in a film, it'll work in a book, it won't work in a movie, and so he went to King, and King blessed the changing of it. But either way, here Tad lives, in the book, everything plays out just like it does here, only... Tad's dead. She, Donna thinks he's alive in the car when she goes out and has her final battle with Cujo and impales him. And then when it's all done, her husband arrives to find the boy dead in the trunk from dehydration. Which ending do you prefer? Grimmer is better, I guess. It gets a more gut reaction. A dead child is better than, you know, a movie that ends with hugs. I mean, I think when it's a horror movie, I, because I don't have any need to see these characters come together at the end, the fact that it's going to end on a freeze frame on them on the porch is not particularly heartwarming. So yeah, if he had died, it would have felt like they had at least lost something, that something dramatic had transpired. I, I don't think it would have changed the ultimate problem that we are watching characters that are very stock and, and not compelling. Dead or alive, I don't want to watch them. They're not coming with you. Yeah, I mean, if you kill the kid off, it's a very different movie. Are you punishing Donna because she was an adulterous wife and a bad mom? I don't know. I feel like it's a darker edge. I don't know if this film deserves a darker edge, though. It felt to me like they just either ran out of money or ideas when they do get to add some water in the house, the father shows up and it does the chips freeze frame and credits roll. Yeah, they like, walk out of the house and freeze frame on them. Yeah. And 
Teague said that they tried multiple endings in the script stage, couldn't figure out what worked as a denouement. And I got to admit, with The Boy Alive, what kind of ending could there be here? It just prolongs it. In the book with The Boy Dead, there's an aftermath to deal with. Here, it does seem over, and truthfully, since they hadn't done a whole lot interesting with these characters in the first 90 minutes, I wouldn't want five more of in uninteresting things to tie it up. I guess I'm grateful that somebody hit stop since I couldn't. Yeah, and I didn't remember there being a, I guess I'll call it a carry moment. I didn't remember the dog coming back to life and jumping through the window. They didn't do that in the book, did they? No, that was a movie thing. And you say Carrie, but it was pretty common. This is 83. Back in 81, I know Friday the 13th did this with part two. He jumped through a window there. In 80, we had young Jason pop out. Those are the ones that come to mind. It's just... It, it, it is a common horror trope. Yeah. But Carrie was one of the ones to do it best and earliest. Yeah, but this is the killer returns, which I find different than the hand in the grave. It's still a final, oh my god, you thought it was a peaceful moment and it's scary kind of thing. But this feels more rote than Carrie's hand from the grave. And that it ends at a breakfast table with cereal. I didn't know whether it was going to be, like, wouldn't it be funny if it ends with them, like, eating it and him shitting blood? That would have been a good one. Jeez. Hey, I'm trying to tie this together. This stuff just, I'm sorry, but the ad campaign, the divorce drama, and the killer dog do not come together. (laughs) I, I would have liked for that to happen, but it just does not. So, Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Cujo? Jacob. Watching it, I was trying to remember what hooked me when I was, you know, 13 or 14 and watched this on Lifetime. Like, what got me to sit down? Because I didn't know it was a Stephen King thing, I don't think. And that wouldn't have been a real draw for me. But I I think it's, yeah, the cinematography is really well done at times. And I think some of those shots of the mother and son in the car and the sweltering heat, there was just something horrific about that. Unfortunately, this film doesn't live up to the horror. It's a weird horror film for it to be uh, Stephen King because there's not a supernatural element here. It's rabies. It's, you know, dog got bit by a bat and goes crazy and, and eats people. We talked about Boogeyman. Tad's always scared of that monster in the closet. That's what I thought of. Dollar Baby. That's what this should have been. This should have been a 30 minute art school project for it to be a feature length film you gotta draw some themes together you gotta put these puzzle pieces together and nothing comes together here it's a long hard wait to get to the killing and when the killing happens it's only so 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 this is you know it's it's not awful but it's not a recommend Stuart. Yeah, they didn't fix what was wrong with the book. I mean, I feel like a lot of my criticisms about this movie are with the source material itself. But the source material did have the benefit of being able to go into the psychology of what the mom was thinking and the dad was thinking. And yes, what the dog was thinking, too. And here, because it is a movie... We have to rely on these performances, and it is largely a nonverbal, physical situation. You know, I do feel like, yeah, there is some really strong cinematography, thanks to Yonda Bont in this movie, and they did the best they could in, with a 1983 budget. It could have been worse. 
I feel like it's about as good as Jaws 2 is where I would rank this. And much better than many of that Stephen King stinker stuff we talked about with Night Shift. So his name isn't completely soiled at this point as far as a Stephen King movie. I think that it's not an embarrassment. But yeah, what's wrong here is evident. Even if you remade this, I think you'd have to work really hard to change what wasn't working with the book. And then Stephen King would hate it. Yeah, well, that may be. But I think the one change I really would insist on is you needed to have maybe Tad have a relationship with Cujo. It should have been his dog. And maybe you would have had more emotional feelings about that dog turning on him. And I think I liked it the least of the three of us. And what I'm learning here as I do these books and nachos... I've studied film for over 20 years. You know, I took film criticism and filmmaking classes in college. For fun, I was listening to commentaries and makings of ever since DVDs were around and even before when they had TV specials. I've just studied what it takes to make a film and the pacing of a film and like the 30-minute act rule of a film. But when I'm doing all of my research for Stephen King books and other books for Books and Nachos... I'm learning more about pacing in a novel and how things work in a novel and the fact that it's totally different because the reader sets their own pace in a book. They can read at whatever speed they want. And I think the fatal flaw here is by being so true to the novel that they even keep its pacing that it creates a bad film. A book is not a movie and a movie's not a book. There has to be adaptation for the medium. If you don't do that... You're going to get something that doesn't work because now you're moving at the pace of the movie instead of moving as fast as you turn the pages as fast as you want to read. So while the pacing definitely didn't feel great in the novel itself, though King's writing was better than D. Wallace's acting. <laughs> Agreed. In the movie, what was bad in the book becomes torturous. And then there's just not enough good here to pay it off. So I'm giving this a pretty strong not recommend. And if I look at the King stuff we've reviewed, no, this is not the worst. Mm, no, please. Yeah. Almost. I would actually say every single thing in Night Shift was worse. Uh, this is worse than the original Children of the Corn. Not to me. No. Yeah, you are the odd man out here, Arnie. This is worse than the first Lawnmower Man, which at least had its fun. Uh, there's some artful shots in this. That That's what yeah. held my attention here. It's a well-made version of a not very good book, is the way I would look at it. And, uh, yeah, it, there's just not enough plot to keep it going for at feature length. Well, either way, it's a not recommend, a pretty strong one. And, yes, if I look at what was made before this... Not what we've reviewed, because we're reviewing in the order King wrote the stories, not the order the movies were made. If we were going in order of the movies being made, this would be our fifth review and the first one that truly sucks. And so, yeah, it's the beginning of the end of King's name being golden in cinema. But, Stuart, you mentioned if they remade this. Did you know that they are talking about rebooting Cujo into something... A little bit more modern? I don't even know what that means. <laughs> yeah, what, what what could that be? Uh, what's he on the internet? A robot dog? I don't know who Sun Classic Pictures is, but they are going to remake Cujo. I don't know if it's a keep the rights thing or whatever. The new title is 
Cujo C period U period J period O period. Oh, like chomps. Oh, I was about to say Cooge point O. It's canine unit joint operations. Oh, sure. Why not? Cyber dogs. <laughs> Just like Lawnmower Man 2. This sounds like what they would have done in the 90s for the Saturday morning cartoon spinoff. There was Chomps. I don't know if you remember this. It was a Disney movie about a robot dog. Yeah, this sounds great. Exactly what this book needed. More robots. It's being directed by Lang Elliott, who has done such things as Cage and Cage 2. Mm. Uh, Lou Ferrigno? Yes, Lou Ferrigno with Reb Brown. Yeah, there, there's an acting combo. Oh, that's not good. <laughs> Hulk and Cap together at last. You're better off with a robot dog. That is supposedly coming out next year. This goes right there with Men in Black 21 Jump Street as films that I'm like, you announce these things. You may even have somebody writing them. I'll believe it when filming starts and you have actual firm proof of this. So it just sounds malicious it's weird that we don't have a sequel i'll give you that i find it very strange that this is the first time we have a stephen king property that they didn't make a shitty ass sequel to i don't or a tv movie hell why not a tv series the way they go about these days every <laughs> where week. kuja goes from town to town eating people there you go yeah sure why not it's like a reverse bill bixby hulk <laughs> Well, thank God McGarris didn't miniseries this. Could you imagine two <laughs> nights of the adultery story? Two? How about four? <laughs> well, I figured there would then be one night in the car and one night of climax. I don't know. But <laughs> man, yeah, this is the one that it is the start of things that won't be seen again. Christine is a movie came out the same year. But yeah, it is mercifully a one off until C.U.J.O. <laughs> if they dare to put that out if they can find the money well good luck to them it'll be hard to make a movie worse than Lawnmower Man 2 or Mangler 3 they did have a bunch of Children of the Corn sequels and a new one coming but we are not done with King yet we have one more week we're going well, to Arnie we got 90 more weeks of King but yes this <laughs> spring yeah for right now before we move on to some theatrical releases we have the Running Man, that was the third Richard Bachman book published shortly after Cujo. And so we're going to be getting an Arnold movie here that is almost nothing like the book. Unlike this one, we go from something that is so loyal to the book it's damning to something that's so different from the book that it's almost impossible to consider it the same. Forget Arnold, we're getting a Richard Dawson movie. <laughs> True enough. And you know, the strange thing is I remember liking it. I have not seen it since the 80s. Yeah, I saw it as a kid when it came out in theaters and never revisited it. So I loved it then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was the first Arnold movie I liked. I'll talk about it next week. I've seen it recently. So in the meantime, for those who would like more now playing, our spring donation drive is fully underway. Last Friday, our first Silver Level podcast went out with Men in Black. This Friday, Men in Black 2. Both movies that have talking dogs. <laughs> True. I hadn't put that together. It's part of our donation drive with Silver for $10 or more. You get reviews of the three Men in Black films, and then later this summer, also both Independence Day films. That is five bonus podcasts for a donation of $10 or more. 
for $25 or more. We also add to that sci-fi from the summer of 86, where we're reviewing six sci-fi fantasy movies from that year. 30 years later, we're doing The First Critters, Invaders from Mars, Space Camp, Labyrinth, Big Trouble in Little China, some highly requested John Carpenter, and then Night of the Creeps. And then if you want to go platinum, that's $35 or more. You get all those shows plus three Ghostbusters reviews ending with that theatrical reboot. And those are only available until the end of July. So you can find all the details by clicking the banner at the top of our homepage, nowplayingpodcast.com. And also this Friday, in addition to Men in Black 2, if you're in or around Indianapolis, the Indiana Comic-Con is beginning. And on Saturday night at 7 p.m., Marjorie and I are hosting a showing of Howard the Duck. (laughs) Also, another sci-fi film of the summer 1986, one we've already covered, one of our most infamous, I think. Are you bringing the nipple? I am not bringing the nipple because it's latex and very fragile, and also people will look at me weird. Yeah, you don't want to have to explain that to airport security. (laughs) I'm driving, but I am going to bring some props. I think I'm going to bring... Probably some original concept art I have from it, and maybe the animatronic duck head that cost ILM over $125,000 to make, one of the production models, and maybe even a pair of duck feet used on screen. So there'll be some props there, I think. Is this the first time you're seeing it since we recorded that show? Oh, hell no. I've probably seen it 15 times. Oh, the Blu-ray came out recently. I'm sure... You watched it day one. It actually got heavy rotation on HBO for a while, so it was just on in the house. (laughs) Okay, because it's on HBO doesn't mean that you need to turn it on, but okay, Uh, you've loved the movie, so... Hey, you gotta have background noise sometime, and sometimes that background noise is Howard the Duck. I guess it is. And I can't get enough of the Thomas Dolby song. (laughs) You could just get the song and play that on your MP3 player. (laughs) I'm now collecting the old vinyl. I even have the exclusive UK vinyl release. Marjorie's hoping for a spontaneous sing-along to break out at the end of the movie to that, so... (laughs) We'll see if the audience does that or not. We're giving away some giveaways to the first people who show up, some Howard the Duck trading cards and things. How about the first person to walk out? (laughs) I'll give you a high five. Leia Thompson is at the convention signing autographs and things. I don't think she's going to be at the showing, but cons are weird places. You never know what's going to happen. So come (laughs) on out to Indiana Comic Con Saturday night at 7. I hope a lot of Now Playing listeners show up. So Jacob Stewart... Thank you for joining me, and please, God, get me out of here. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. Now that you've heard the movie review, head to booksandnachos.com to hear Arnie's reviews and analysis of Stephen King's original novels. That's good, Joe. Yeah. 
and come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com to hear our reviews of other Stephen King movies, such as Carrie, The Shining, Children of the Corn, and dozens more in our archive section. Now you're talking. Now you're talking. Also at our site, hear reviews of other films such as Maniac, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Saw, Riddick, Friday the 13th, The Avengers films, Star Trek, and more. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com and come back each week for another new movie review. While at nowplayingpodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this review with other listeners. What we're talking about here is a lot of scared people. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. God, see my baby. You can also help out Now Playing by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Hey, that's really nice. Now Playing is edited by Arnie. Come here. We make it better. Now Playing credit narration by Brock. Who's going to say the monster words? The film discussed in this podcast is the property of its original copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Now Playing Podcast is not affiliated with the makers or distributors of these films. Well, then nobody got hurt, right? The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Inganza Media Incorporated. Bullshit, now you don't believe that, do you? Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2016, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Fuck you, dog. Yeah, this is like Linda Carter from T2 having to face off against the dog versus Linda Carter in T1. Linda like, Hamilton. They're, oh, sorry. Linda Carter Linda in Carter, Wonder Woman. I was like, what yes. the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> you didn't see Wonder Woman in that? <laughs> Instead of a leash, it's a lasso of truth. Yes. Hey, I'd want Steve the Handyman to come over my husband because I think Steve the Handyman could take off Cujo versus Vic. You said come over my husband in the book. He actually ejaculates on the bed. And so I was like thinking of something totally different. In addition to trashing the house, he masturbates and comes all over the. I think I remember that part oh. now that you mentioned. It. So when you said he come over the husband, I'm like, whoa. Oh, okay. Arrive. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my God.